I've come to a point that it's not enough for me just to go and join them with my banner. I, I feel as a parent and an adult, we need to find a, a way out of here. We need to find a pathway forward and we need to work and walk with the kids to try and make sure that we start heading in those directions. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk. Good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest who will introduce herself. Uh, yeah, Philippa, uh, please go ahead. Yeah. Hello. My name's Philippa Rowland, and I'm a fifth generation Australian on my father's side. So I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional Aboriginal custodians of, who've cared for this land and country and pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging for this uh, great nation and country. I currently live on the boundary between the land of the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains and the Paramount people of the Adelaide Hills. Uh, so in a nutshell, I'm a very fortunate Australian Buddhist living in the Adelaide Hills with Cleland National Park on one side and a quarry on the other. So in terms of my current role, mm -hmm. I'm the president of the Multi-Faith Association of South Australia and the deputy chair of Religions for Peace in Australia. Um, but by many of your listeners also, by this stage of my life, I feel like I've had several lives. Uh, and my statement of being fortunate, I think, relates to having lived in many countries around the world as I grew up and as my parents were in the diplomatic service. Um, so I had a very privileged upbringing, but returned to Australia from Paris to Australia via several months in India and Nepal. And I would say that radically changed the rest of my life because in though that period of time at 18, I had a deep awakening that I was a have in a world of have-nots. And that made me think deeply about what I could do with my life that would be useful, that could be of help to others. And I guess as somebody who loved nature right through my life, my others have always included the living world. And I guess there's an interesting link with being in Malaysia as a young child from the age of six to nine. And I think my first steps toward Buddhism came from riding my little tricycle around our driveway. And uh, a friend came up and said, Philippa, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I said, I'm riding my bike. And they said, no, no, look. And I'd been riding my little tricycle all over an ant trail. And there were hundreds of dead and dying ants all over the driveway. And I was mortified. Like I suddenly realized that even though I was only six or seven, that yet still by being clumsy, we have that capacity to cause great harm. Yeah. Hmm. And, and Philippa, were you, you, you were raised in another tradition or, or, uh... So I'm from an Anglican heritage, mm -hmm. but to be honest, uh, we faithfully went bushwalking every Sunday. Mm. So, so our weekends were spent in nature and we went to church uh, at, at Christmas and Easter and for Anzac Day. Uh, but I went to an Anglican school in my uh, teenage years from 11 to 16. 
and probably came to sort of consciously being a person of faith when I began university. Yeah. And, and what did you study? I went to Adelaide University and I did agricultural science. Mm. So I did an ag science degree in Adelaide. And then when I finished, I worked in a fruit and vegetable shop and a herb garden, packing and picking herbs. And I did that to fund volunteering two days a week for two years in the community aid abroad, mm -hmm. which is called Oxfam elsewhere. So after university, I, I, I worked for two years in the office and I ran what I called seedling, which was seed, seedlings for the environment and development. And we planted trees for South Australian farmers and got paid, I remember, something like 50 cents a tree. And the money went to reforestation projects in, uh, in other countries. And after that period, out of tree planting, I actually met my husband 30 years ago. And he and I went on a self-funded study tour. We travelled around India and Nepal, visiting NGOs for about nine months, mm. um, which was a wonderful experience to have that. Um, to bring you back to Buddhism, when kind of, you know, quote unquote, officially, you you became a Buddhist. Was that that at a younger age or later when you studied? How how did that uh, uh, come about? So I I attended Buddha House here in Adelaide when I was at university and uh, had my actually. Yes, so at 18, I, I would have um, gone for refuge and, and heard Buddhist talks and started a bit of practice. And then uh, when I was in Canberra, um, I took refuge with uh, Rinpoche Lama Chodak, who's still in Canberra with Sakyaloso Chodzong. So I've taken uh, uh, refuge in the teachings in the Mahayana tradition. Mm. Uh, of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, but particularly uh, the Sakya tradition. Okay, and yeah. and how did your family and, and friends reacted to that when you know when you were eighteen and you decided to to do this? Um, I can't remember anybody saying anything about it. Really, <laughs> 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 I think it was. In a way, it was an internal journey, and, and yeah. for much of my life, it has been mm -hmm. an internal journey in that I think being a Buddhist reflects the way I am in the world, mm -hmm. um, but it's not uh, particularly, I think, because since returning to um, Adelaide in 2010, which is when I became involved in the Multi-Faith Association, mm -hmm. In, in my work in interfaith, um, I often feel there's a conduit for the meeting place between religions. And I guess I have um, one of my underpinning sort of deep understandings is, is the most important thing is how to be a good human alive on this earth today mm -hmm. and what do our various faith traditions give us the moral courage and the moral authority to do and to be as humans. And, and I think that comes down to my limited, very, knowledge of different faiths. But many of them have, see that humans were given great gifts in this world. And yet with those great gifts comes great responsibility to care for each other and to care for the world. And that sense in many, many traditions, in Islam and Christianity and in, in, in Judaism, in Baha'i faith, that we're given responsibility to care for this earth. And that is a very, very strong call these days. Yeah. Um, can I... You, you mentioned that in 2010 you started uh, working for the 
you know the institution that you're working for now you're you're the president right of of um... i am now i mean i think the, the context mm -hmm. just to wind back the link piece okay is that um i had my first child when i turned 40 mm -hmm. so um in 2003 and then a daughter in 2005 and moved to the Bega Valley where I lived for five years with a community climate group called Clean Energy Fraternity. Um, mm -hmm. And then we moved to Adelaide with two quite young children and my mother with dementia. So um, I really since then primarily have, have volunteered my time with my husband working as a remote doctor. So he is working in remote Australia and does fly in, fly out, which is notoriously difficult with closed borders and the pandemic. Um, but that is how I suppose I've been able to commit myself to work on community climate solutions, as I call it, mm -hmm. and, and also in the last uh, five years in particular, faith-led climate action, which has been probably my primary focus. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you can you tell a, a bit about the Multi Faith Association of South Australia, and and um, what 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 kind of you know, you know the question that came up for me was Multi Faith Association because I you know you, what you see more is interfaith. Uh, the word interfaith yeah. and not multi-faith, right? So yeah. can you explain a little bit about that? And, and what does the association I, I, I try to do? I won't explain the difference. I'll just explain the history, okay. which predates me. So um, in South Australia, the Multi-Faith Association of South Australia, I think, was established in around 1981. And it was set up to deepen understanding and mutual good relations between people of all faiths. And it is a small not-for-profit voluntary organization that has done, it used to run annual seminars, bringing people together from different faiths. And I uh, joined it as a member when I arrived. Um, and just in the lead up, to the Paris Climate Talks, we held our biggest event to date, which was uh, called Humanity at the Crossroads, an appeal for spiritual leadership on climate change. And we had um, 400 people and people from different faith traditions talking about, you know, what do our faiths call us to do at this emerging time of crisis around climate? Um, and I then went to the Paris Climate Talks and, found that valuable but very unsettling because those global climate talks, there's a lot of dialogue and discussion and a lot of things that you can learn and find out about, but it's ultimately all froth and bubbles around the central conversation we are not party to, which is the decision-making process between governments. So I found a deep need to want a quiet place to sit and meditate. And my investigations led me to bump into the Green Faith Association that has been based in upstate New York. And that has actually been my delight over the time since Paris to see that now transform itself into a Green Faith international network with 14 founding members. So in Australia, that's held by the Australian religious response to climate change. Mm -hmm. But there are also founding members from India, Indonesia, Brazil, Chile, five countries in Africa, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Kenya, South Africa, and Malawi. Uh, I think I've got it right. Um, Canada, America, UK, and Europe. So that's really quite a good 14 member founding group mm -hmm. for the first event held in March 11 this year sounding the alarm on climate change, where we had 420 events in 49 countries, hmm. which were communities ringing bells in cathedrals or called the Azam in mosques, uh, with a real call for the world to take seriously and take action to protect people and planet.
as we move forward. So I find that link between having a, a home group, if you like, mm -hmm. where here in Adelaide tomorrow night, I've helped organised uh, interfaith prayers for the International Day of Peace, which is going to be held in St Peter's Cathedral and live streamed on their Facebook page. And I think we've got um, Muslim, Jewish, Baha'i, uh, Anglican, Buddhist, Hindu. We've got about six faith traditions uh, coming together to share brief prayers. That's great, yeah. And but to to go come back to you know you the frustration uh, that you shared in terms of you know ultimately you know how can you share really have a voice while because governments is you know are responsible for a lot of those decisions. So how can you push that as as a citizen um, as the grassroots you know movement? Um, do you feel you? You are effective through, you know, through the different uh, <laughs> movements that you're part of. I'm sorry to laugh, <laughs> but I think I can. I think I can ask that question because I'm part of of you know the groups that you're part of as well, right? So it's it's uh, it's not only about you know being. It's trying to to reflect on that. So so. Um, Yes, it's deeply held. But I think I was also partly laughing <laughs> because on my return from that trip to India, mm -hmm. which was the long trip, the nine-month one to India and Nepal, I landed a job in the Bureau of Resource Sciences. Mm -hmm. So I was an agricultural scientist, part of a small agency inside the Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries that was there designed to provide scientific advice to policymakers at a period of time when there were people already in the building working on climate and I was working on intractable issues like pesticides, heavy metals like cadmium, and then biodiversity management, landscape management. Mm -hmm. And I found it a great privilege but an enormous frustration because even as a scientist within the system, it's not that you can necessarily turn around the direction of national policy making. And that had been taught to me when I lived in Bega, because we had a community target, 50-50 by 2020, 50% renewable energy and a cut of 50% energy use by the year 2020. And we came up with a solar farm project, which would have been replicable 10 hectare solar farms we could roll out. Mm -hmm. But we were deemed ineligible for what they call the state and federal feed-in tariff, which enabled us to bring the cost of participation down. And without it, it was more expensive to participate in the solar farm than to build your own panels on your roof. I went to Copenhagen to get hold of money for our solar farm, innocent Australian idiot, because of course Australia is a well-developed nation and we don't qualify for the clean development mechanism. We have plenty of money. It's just how we choose to deploy it and spend it. So at the end of it, I went to Copenhagen Cathedral to hear Desmond Tutu, who's one of my heroes, and when they rang the bells for climate change in 2009, they carried three symbols of climate change down the aisle, which were bleached coral from Tuvalu, dried up cob of maize from Africa, and glacier stones from Greenland. And I remember sitting at the back going, I wonder what the symbol would be for Australia. And then it hit me like a bolt of lightning. It'd be a lump of charcoal for our vulnerability to the burning bush and our seemingly hopeless addiction to fossil fuels. And I suddenly in 2009 saw Australia stuck on the horns of dilemma with this seemingly hopeless addiction to fossil fuels while we are yet so vulnerable. And, and 
the last 11 years has shown that that was pretty spot on. We're still moving, but we're still pretty stuck on, on coal and gas, even though the transition to renewables has really galloped the pace and South Australia will overtake Norway, I hear in November, to have the most penetration of solar panels on rooftops anywhere in the whole world. Yeah. So communities and local governments have really begun to shift. Sorry, but that's just a long um, ramble for why I recognise that it's not easy for individuals to steer governments, but there is a real value in the voice of moral authority of people reflecting on their faith about what is right and just mm. in terms of the way we live and the way we act. And if people speak out with that voice, then I think we have a hope. Thanks for that, Philippa. Um, you know, faith is is very important uh, for you. And you know, when I listen to you from the beginning, and when you talk about, you know, how you look at life, and and well, I know you for a little bit longer than than this talk as well. Um, you know, you know that that uh, this particular podcast is a spin-off of my hundred mile walk um, that I started. Mm almost 10 years ago now because mm. the, the, my 10th uh, anniversary will be in October. Um, I will walk from 11 to the 17th again, hopefully with some people. Um, you know. But um, yeah, so I, I, you know, I started to walk for hunger and, and poverty and injustice. Um, and, and during those walks, I talk with, with people about life and what drives you. And, and faith is, is very often a, you know, an important topic especially when we talk about, you know, what is the purpose of life and, and stuff. The, the question that I wanted to ask you, though, is, is um, what do you see happening with the younger generation in relation to faith, in relation, in relation to religion and spirituality? Because um, I'm, I'm really yeah, uh, intrigued by that. Are they, you know, do you see that the younger generation is looking at this differently? Uh, than the older generations. What do you see happening within your community? I think there are many paths into that conversation. Um, I think at a deep level, individual faith is a way of understanding our place in the world and our deep connection with the spiritual and the wider world and people's pathway to that is often determined by their place of birth their upbringing their community so you know one may not choose to be born in x y or z and for some people their journey means that they might choose a different faith from the one they were born into but across faiths that I know of just in my limited understanding, and this is only in the last 10 years, I would see that the engagement of youth in faiths is a variable commodity. And, and some of the faith groups with the most active youth groups here would probably be the Ahmadiyya community, um, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, who have a wonderful motto, which is love of all, hatred for none, and they do enormous work in the community uh, with their youth groups, engaged in putting their faith into practice in the wider world. And I see that also with the Sikh community, where their young people were so engaged throughout the pandemic lockdown at the beginning, still in cooking and providing food for up to 500 people a week at one point in Adelaide. And with people volunteering, obviously old enough to drive from their youth committees, of, of delivering food to people in need. Um, and even the Latter-day Saints have, have, you know, very active youth groups, whereas some of the other, other churches and faiths are struggling to attract young people mm. to, to be participating in formal religion. But if you take faith to be that 
broader tent mm-hmm. in encouraging us to care for each other and for the earth, then I think that that, that, that encompasses the student strike movement and, and the youth movement that is growing in, in, in a strength of call for action. And I think it's valuable for them because the worst thing in life is to feel that your future has been taken from you and there is nothing you can do about it. And I think that despair or despondency and turning away from the world is also visible in in parts of our young people today. And, And it's a benefit if they can find a link as we all do, to wake up in the morning and think there's something it's worth doing. There's, you know, it's, there's value in getting up in the morning and contributing on that day. And here in Adelaide, again, I take great heart and courage because the student group is coordinated with a number of other groups and organised a festival of climate action that will be held in Victoria Square uh, on October the 17th and 18th, which is 16th and 17th, which seems to be a culmination of many events coming our way in October with the World Parliament of Religions and numerous things on that weekend and the Green Faith Days of Action. But I was really glad to hear the young people working with Extinction Rebellion and Farmers for Climate Action and faith groups and others to bring together a dialogue space in, in a square in the middle of Adelaide City to talk about climate solutions and to look at what we can bring together to weave together as part of a way forward. That I think gives me hope and I think I hope it will give young people courage to continue to. Hmm. Does that answer your question? It does, and it's and right. I I know I, I realize it's it's not a it's quite a you know broad question that I have and yeah what I, no, what, I what I'm looking for is just to get some because because we uh, you know with with my virtual co-workers and with my uh, co-workers mm-hmm. we often talk about the younger generation and then you know you talk about hey you know less people are going to church. Uh, younger generation especially does that mean they are less religious and and less spiritual um so a lot of discussions uh, are around that but your your you know you you describing what is happening is is really helpful for me understanding what's happening because i think mm. it you know it depends a little bit on what type of religion when i listen to you uh, you know certain churches are maybe even stronger than ever uh, still growing others are not um, but if you look, what you're saying to me is, if you look deep down and what the younger generation is about, they uh, that's not very different than, you know, when you and I were are, are trying to figure out what, what is the purpose of life and how, how is that? So the labels might be different uh, sometimes. Well, I but, think uh, for this younger generation, I mean, it's a great... Uh, it's it's a great burden on their heart to mm. feel that there may not be a future. Mm-hmm. There may not be a future for them to have kids. I mean, that's a very immediate and direct existential threat mm-hmm. that this generation of kids is facing. And and I have been feeling, Maurice, that when I see those brave kids getting out into the street. Mm-hmm. I've come to a point that it's not enough for me just to go and join them with my banner. I, I feel as a parent and an adult, we need to find a, a way out of here. We need to find a pathway forward. And we need to work and walk with the kids to try and make sure that we start heading in those directions and, and leading with some of the, you know, the solutions and finding hope and, and courage and, and action that comes from identifying that with, there is still time. The sixth assessment report, mm-hmm. while it was widely in the news as being code red for humanity, when you listen to the scientists, they're saying, we still have time to mm-hmm. get 
our planetary temperature to stabilize at 1.5 mm. if we start now seriously start now yeah um because i don't think fear and despondency leads you to action it leads you to turn away and to close down and therefore i think the outreach to younger generations to give them a sense there is a future they can they can work towards it is vitally important yeah and and you know i i, I think i understand where your worries are but it is great to hear that you also still see hope. And you mentioned that report that just came out, you know, of these scientists that's, you know, that basically tell, yes, the situation is dire, but you still can do something. Where I felt uh, hopeful is, you know, statements in relation to there are things that you can do as an individual, because often you feel overwhelmed by the whole thing, right? But there are yeah. things you can do as an individual and every step still is a step. Um, so don't hesitate to take those. Did you come away with a, a similar type of feeling yeah. after reading the report and, and listening to some of those folks that were in, interviewed? Yeah. For me, it had happened a, a few years earlier, um, Maurice, in that I have been working with a project called Living the Change, which is about lifestyle change and how mm -hmm. it's our cumulative impacts that, that are causing the problem and therefore cumulative decision making can help improve it mm. in terms of choosing what we eat what energy sources we have and and what transport we use mm -hmm. so they those elements of lifestyle choice add up but i've also been around long enough to know that you need to it's both and we need both yeah. community grassroots individual change and we need political and policy change because otherwise it's like a great game of snakes and ladders and we put in this enormous community effort to improve our own lifestyles and reduce our own emissions mm -hmm. but then we climb up the ladder and step on the tail of a snake of a bad policy decision mm -hmm. And we slide back down to the bottom of the table and we've lost 10 years and we don't have 10 years. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a moment in history. We do need to really work at the individual community and the political level to shift things. Mm. So I think it can be done, but it's certainly not going to be easily won. I'll think about that. Um, But certainly the connection to individuals. I take a, a lot of heart from Christiana Figueres. Like she talks about being gritty optimists and that's not fluffy, you know, imagining some rosy future. It's actually accepting the worst and seeing therefore what we can do with that. I watched His Holiness the Dalai Lama talking to Greta Thunberg with three climate scientists. Mm -hmm. And while that was daunting, you know, brief clips about glacial melt and forest deforestation and reality of where we're up to, I found myself strangely hopeful because it closed the loop for me. And I'm still remain with that loop closed. Mm. Because rapid transition to 100% renewable is necessary but no longer sufficient. Mm -hmm. We also need to start healing the earth. We need to start replanting, caring for landscapes, having regenerative agriculture. And that opens the opposite of Pandora's box. That opens this enormous smorgasbord of solutions of working with nature. Mm -hmm. So nature-based solutions, whether that's algae or acacias, and, and replanting and regrowing and turning humans towards the earth, and, and I, I feel that is part of the solution, is to bring that into frame of what we can do to help heal the earth.
I would like to to go with you to another part that's also happening on on this Mother Earth, and uh, that's racial justice. And um, mm. the reason why I often talk about this is, you know, I, I think it's extremely important. But also, I work for an organization that celebrates its seventy fifth anniversary. So it's an NGO, a faith based NGO, and we are reflecting, you know, especially during this time, how did we do? around the different topics around climate you know name it and an important part of our discussion is how did we do around racial justice both within the organization as well as you know more external in in terms of our work you know with whom we collaborate and how um if you uh, if i ask you to um look at the ngo sector as a whole and i i know that is again a very difficult question because there are so many different ngos but i'm asking the question anyway um, how do you think the NGO sector is doing and did around racial justice issues? I think we're on the cusp of seeing deeper, more meaningful engagement and and mutual collaboration. There's a there's a slow shift that has been happening. And it is slow, but I think it's genuine. And that gives me a sense of hope that there is uh, a deepening real respect growing for Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous people. Even if in Australia, for example, many, many communities have been dispossessed from their lands and their cultures and cut off from their own birthright. So many of the stolen generation children in Australia who were taken from their kids, from the, you know, children taken from their parents mm -hmm. and raised in institutions. Um, whereas in other parts of Australia, you still have First Nations living on country who still have that unbroken lineage and understanding going back. Now pushing back 80,000, 100,000 years, a long time. And I think the recent fires in Australia have raised this whole deep question of whether we're going to value cultural understanding of management of fire and landscapes. And there are some great work to set up the Fire Sticks Alliance, which is looking at reconnecting Indigenous practice and getting trials on the ground in Australia and I've had a deep kind of awakening to the fact that Western practice is to come in and do a hot burn just before the fire season. And we burn the same country near me, Mount Lofty, is burnt every year to reduce the fuel load. But the way we're doing it is drying out the landscape and it's selecting fire tolerant species, so bracken. We're getting a more flammable environment that's drier because we keep burning it. Whereas indigenous practice would burn completely different time of year, so slowly that you can watch the insects escape the flames and climb up the trees, like it's a gentle, slow. They talk about walking the fire through the landscape. And what in fact happens is a lot of smaller uh, herbaceous species come in and you retain more moisture in the landscape. So it's returning diversity and moisture and reducing fuel loads, but in a completely different way from blitzing it just before the fire season. But the level of respect for that and the level of understandable concern about protecting communities from wildfires, which are reality in Australia in many, many parts, um, how that plays out over the next 10 years will be just one test case for how much we're willing to acknowledge traditional law and traditional people in their own country and if we're willing to learn from them. And there are many parts and many NGOs doing what we can. There's a shift also beginning, which is an important one, moving from showing respect by the statements we make at the beginning about acknowledging elders to actually sharing agency with indigenous people. So multi-faith, we're trying to move into a place where 
instead of just asking an elder to come and welcome us to country, you know, giving them a chunk of the agenda and saying, look, would you like to come? And what would you like to say and do with this time? And what could we do to help you? What's a more mutual benefit arrangement that we can have? Because we need to understand that there's few of them and many of us in terms of, of uh, the demand for everybody to sort of like have that green paint, if you like, in, in terms of doing the right thing, but to, to, to be much more genuine and open about what are we actually doing to help Indigenous uh, situation for communities with very high rates of disease and difficulties in education systems across remote Australia. So different NGOs, um, I think two things. One, there are quite a lot of quite senior faith figures now of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander background because of the mission they've been brought up and, and have strong faiths in those traditions. And they are very wise and powerful voices for the community at this time, speaking mm -hmm. in both the faith and traditional spaces. And you've also got a lot of um, wonderful things happening with the SEED network. So the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. Um, mm. When my mother died, when I turned 50, I went to the Everest Base Camp, which I never thought of doing ever. because it's. Uh, mm. But I went with the Australian Youth Climate Coalition and Amelia Telford, who's a Bundjalung young woman from New South Wales, who went on to set up SEED, um, which is... Seed Mob, a young people's environment group. And that again is a network that's giving a lot of young people a lot of courage, hope, and connectivity, and a very strong voice in the public space in Australia. And they've got their backs against the wall against a lot of projects that are looking at extracting gas mm. with uh, conventional and fracking projects right across Australia. So there are a lot of Opportunities to, to support Indigenous communities and their sense of responsibility to their land. Uh, you'd asked at one point about a song, and I had thought of one, but this conversation has led me to think another song is also very relevant, is one by Paul Kelly, sung with um, Kev Carmody, the two of them together. and. The indigenous person sings, this land is me. And the white person sings, this land is mine. And you see this harmony that goes between the two of the different worldviews. Aboriginal people feel that they are part of the landscape and their responsibility is because they're intrinsically connected to all parts of the living world. And they have responsibility, different kinship structures to different animals and plants in their birthright is a responsibility to care for them. And white people, I say white, because in here we were as uh, people arriving, put boundaries around things and cleared trees and said, this is mine. And it's a different worldview. Okay. Now, yeah, I wanted to say two things um, as a reaction of what you just mentioned, uh, Philip Weiss. One is, um, obviously, you know, you're one of my guests who, who listened to previous episodes because you started to talk about a question that I always ask. Can you mention a song or a piece of music that, that, that embodies for a big part? So that's great. Um, and um, the other thing I really appreciate listening to you is, uh, at least that's how I heard it. I, I think if NGOs look at, you know, how they did and how they are doing, around racial justice issues and other, you know, um, rights. Um, it's very often focused on, in, you know, increase people's voice and choice, while agency is maybe not always addressed. So, I, I, you know, I heard you say that and I was thinking, you know, you might, you might be right there. So that's a big, uh, very often forgotten. So let me give you one example. Um, 
at the moment, I'm also a, an Australian conservation counsellor on, on the community council of the Australian Conservation Foundation. They have their headquarters in Melbourne in a big building that's environmentally sustainable and it's been retrofitted and it's wonderful. So they did a deep dive into what could they do would be meaningful for, for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Australia. And this whole idea of agency was came up and was held quite strongly. And they've dedicated the front part of that building to be a space for Indigenous people to use as a rent-free space and place with access to internet and phones for them to use as an organising space. And that has probably been spearheaded by, by the seed mob, the young Aboriginal people, but it, and it was opened with elders from, from the people that are still on the ground, tribal people in, in, in Adelaide. And then I think it's one example of making it tangible, making it real. Um, and there are, you know, different, different range of ways of, of doing that and showing that the, the concern and care we have is, is, is genuine and not just mm. on the surface, you know, like we used mm. to talk about green paint for people with their environmental credentials and, and this is, you know, like... Okay. Like the equivalent. Um, I'm actually after this. I'm going to go um, at ten o'clock, and um, uh, hmm. meet with the member of the of the Stolen Generation, who was the chair of Reconciliation Blackwood in the Hills, and just talk with him about you know, what's going on in his life and what's going on in mine and where there are areas of overlap and if, if there's things that we can work together mutually. And the kind man has agreed to come and mm -hmm. uh, play the didgeridoo at one of our Green Faith events with the United Church in Blackwood um, on the uh, wow. Monday, the 18th of October. So I think it's, it's these mutually reinforcing... Uh, friendships and relationships that, that, that make it meaningful. And yet I know that in Australia, many urban Australians have never met an Aboriginal person. So, you know, they, they don't have that um, opportunity or that depth of understanding. But again, we find here that there's now a channel called NITV, National Indigenous TV. So those that want to can actually, you know, listen to that, strand in the airwaves mm. it's this thing that you're doing here by opening up an airwave to allow mm. different voices yeah well I, I hope i hope it's uh, I, I i believe really in the in the power of one so if we are able to you know have one listener listening to you and as a, as a step forward you know that that can do a lot i'm convinced about that so uh, any, any last message, invitation, question for our listeners? You spoke about links, and I think um, two things, probably. Um, one is, mm -hmm. with the Parliament of World Religions, I've actually set up a panel which is called Biodiversity Matters, Integral Ecology and Interbeing, and that'll be... Uh, you get onto the World Parliament of Religions site and you search for biodiversity matters, it'll pop up. And integral ecology is the element in the Pope's encyclical Laudato Si, which is, in brief, it speaks to the fact that humans are but one letter in the alphabet of life, was the quote that he used. And mm. it has a deep understanding about how we can work in the world in integral ecology to help heal and connect. And there is a very parallel uh, understanding in Buddhism uh, that was coined by Thich Nhat Hanh, a Theravadan teacher of great standing, who spoke of interbeing and that each of us alive today is only here because of interbeing. And the scientific element of that is really that we all rely on sunlight, green plants, and fresh water. 
and all of the elements of our bodies are part of the elements of all other life. Um, and so that interbeing gives you that sense of holiness of every moment, of every place and every being that we should care for. May all beings be happy. And that, I think, is a positive way to end, uh, along with um, the talk of didgeridoos led me to think often they're made from a deep root of an acacia that grows in the middle of the desert. And the science show yesterday had a wonderful piece actually on the value of acacias as a plant that can take nitrogen out of the atmosphere so it doesn't need fertilizer and is a very good, builds the nutrient of the soil, is an early colonizer of damaged places and has the capacity to draw down huge amounts of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and help rebalance the world's atmosphere. So acacias, certainly in Australia, to re-allow those brigalow scrub forests of acacias mm -hmm. uh, is certainly part of the way forward, I think. So we can each go out and plant a tree. And in your space, it may not be an acacia, but let's see what we can each do in our way to live more gently and to heal the earth in our area. Thank you so much, uh, Philip, for your sharing, you know, as <laughs> you did. And, and how no, no, it was great. I, I, I always enjoy our conversations. And, I know, but and, I'm uh, such a meanderer. I mean to say this and that, and I ended up just going, never mind. No, I'm absolutely sure the listeners have enjoyed this. You can as well. rescue something from it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. No, that's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for um, taking the time and, uh, you know, happy editing and good on you. for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.